Well, if you're just joining us this morning, we are taking a look together this month at one of the most interesting topics I think we've had the chance to reflect on together uh, for a very long time. And I don't think that there's been a series that I've personally been involved in over these past couple of years I've been more excited about because of its practicality and its ultimate potential for influence in our lives than this series that we're looking at together this month. We're taking a particular look at six strands of behavior which when woven through the life of a community of people, whether it's a family, a work group, a circle of friends, a small group, or a team, uh, when woven through this uh, community's life can make a profound difference in the lives of the people there, can make that circle and the individuals involved in it nearly unbreakable in the face of life's many pressures and struggles. And last week, we looked at the uh, strand of commitment uh, that always defines these kinds of of remarkable communities. Uh, These groups that are enormously resilient, that produce unusually resilient people, are always marked by a tremendously high sense of uh, personal commitment to one another. They may have their struggles and their squabbles at times. I mean, what circle of people don't? But the members of that group have an unusually high sense of being all in for one another, of being really committed to one another's welfare and well-being, and they are going to not surrender that uh, relationship with one another, even if it gets very difficult. Today I want to look at the second of the six strands with you today uh, that you will always find characterizing the life of Uh, of really unbreakable people and groups. And because he was involved in helping to shape some of the most resilient uh, communities in the history of the world, I think the uh, words and example of the Apostle Paul have something to teach us today. I want to invite you to just listen with me to uh, a little bit of his story and his testimony as we find it in the Scriptures. In his first letter to the church at Thessalonica, Paul writes, Therefore... Encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. And see here how we see even embedding in his words to them uh, some encouragement. Just as, in fact, I see you doing. I see you leaning into. In his second letter to the church at Corinth, the apostle says again, Finally, brothers and sisters, uh, encourage one another and the God of love and peace will be with you. And then listen to this report from the book of Acts, chapter 20. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people. If you had to boil down... Uh, the, the central idea or theme of these particular passages of Scripture, what's the common thread that links them all together? What is it? That's right, encouragement. It is the, the, the principle and pattern and practice of encouragement. This is something on which 
the Holy Bible, the history of the Church of Jesus, the human development study that I cited uh, last week in the conversation we had then, all of them agree, maybe your own experience even, reinforces this idea. Great groups, terrific teams, fabulous families are always marked by a, a high degree of encouragement towards one another. And it's this encouragement, this pouring in, this building up of the other people in the circle that gives the individuals there and the group itself the power to face almost anything. It's one of the key ingredients to the resilience of these kinds of lives. I think of the parents who sent their daughter, their only daughter, I might add, off to college. Uh, and being in the season when many of us are sending kids off to college, this is particularly a, a relevant uh, idea. And they did this, this set of parents, with a pledge to their daughter that they would try not to overly worry about her. And so at first, things went brilliantly. There were these cheery texts and phone calls in which she was sharing all the wonderful news of how uh, well her classes were going and how much fun she was having with her roommates and the like. And then as she became increasingly involved in the life of the community at college and plugged into the classes and all those other things, the communication began to dry up and slows to a trickle and then finally disappears completely. And... And despite their pledge, mom and dad are now feeling concerned, right? So they, they, they're sending texts out, they're uh, sending emails out, their phone calls are going out, they're getting no response. And, and at long last, um, mom looks in her email box one particular day, and there is a note from their daughter, uh, Melissa, thankfully. And then she opens it up with great excitement to read it. And this is what the note says. Dear mom and dad, I am sorry I haven't written in a while, but I broke my arm jumping from my window to escape the fire. Don't worry, though. My boyfriend is taking good care of me around the clock. I think you're going to like him, despite his being of a different faith and political beliefs. I'm going to bring him home to meet you just as soon as the trial is over. I just know he wasn't involved in that bank robbery. Love, Michelle. P.S. None of the above is true, but I did get a D in chemistry and hope you will keep it in perspective. <laughs> it's amazing, uh, if you think about it, um, how many different fears uh, we live with in life, right? Uh, just think of the ones that may be jangling around in you. You know, will they be okay as they go off to school? You know, will they be okay as they start that new job or enter into that relationship? Uh, will they be okay as they get married or as they get older? Uh, will they be okay? Will I ever be okay <laughs> after this change has, has taken its full effect? Uh, will I be the same? Uh, will they think I am okay? when I arrive in that new place or, or, or when I meet those new people or, or when I've messed up in some way, will they think I'm okay? Do the people I live with and I go to school with and I work with, do they notice what's good about me? 
Do they know how hard I really am working at, uh, at trying to get things right? Do they, do they notice how many things I'm actually doing pretty darn well? How many of us can resonate with some of those anxieties or fears in our own life? This past week, uh, I was out in California and I talked with um, a 35-year-old uh, young man who seemed to have just everything going right for him. Uh, this guy had Hollywood good looks. He was in the picture of health. He was married to an adoring, beautiful wife. They had a fabulous, precociously brilliant uh, little child. Uh, his career was just starting to really take off, and yet he was profoundly discouraged. And so much that he poured his heart out to me in the conversation and has emailed me since saying, can we talk some more? It's my parents, he said. It's my mom and dad. Every conversation we have, uh, every, every contact I have with them just, just weakens me. He said, it's just, it's, it's really gotten to be too much. It's filled with this undertone of disappointment is what I'm constantly feeling from them. They're just so disappointed in me. And I, and I know I've made mistakes. You know, I've made some mistakes along the way. But I have been trying really, really hard to pull things together. And I think I'm making all kinds of pro progress. Why can't they recognize it? Why can't they find anything about my life to celebrate? Now, I'm close enough to this guy. I've known him since he was very young. I've seen the family patterns. I know that what hurt him most was, was not that his parents were blind. I, I know that his deepest fear was that his parents might actually be right. He had made all kinds of pretty serious mistakes in his life. And I think he, he desperately feared that maybe he would always be a screw-up in life. And what he needed most from his parents was to help him believe that he could indeed live into a new and better kind of way. And this is what he was hurting about. This was what was so discouraging about the contact. He needed their help in, in daring to believe that a different kind of future was possible for him. I read somewhere, and maybe you've read this too, that it takes 10 positive comments to overcome the discouraging effect of one negative comment. How many of you have, have ever heard that, uh, that, that citation? Yeah. And I read someplace else that something like 80% of, um, of the feedback that, that young people particularly get from parents and other authority figures is negative. <laughs> Just about 80% of it is, is pointing out something that's not right, not enough, not good, and so forth. I don't know what percentage uh, is operative in the average marriage conversation or in the average workplace uh, dialogue or, 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 or other environments, but I wince when I read those particular numbers because I think how many times I have personally tried to help people by pointing out what wasn't quite right yet, 
what might have been done even better, uh, what was sort of in the right direction, but not fully where it needs to be. I think how many times I've tried to do that and, and, and maybe even was afraid of giving them positive feedback because I thought, well, they know all the good things they're doing or it might give them a swelled head if I go on and on about the positives that I see in them. And so I thought I was helping in these ways. How many of you can relate to that in your own contact with your kids, your teammates, your friends, your family members? or the like. Some time ago in the Chicago Tribune, there appeared an article that observed that most of us are acutely aware of our own struggles. We are acutely aware of our own personal struggles, and we're preoccupied often with our own problems. We sympathize with ourselves because we see our own difficulties so very clearly. Right? We do. We see our own stuff so very clearly. It does not always occur to us that other people are agonized by pains and pressures just like we are. Maybe even worse than we are. That, that child or that co-worker who isn't performing up to the standard that we'd like to, to see them living into, that, 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 that person may have long ago given up hope you know, of ever hitting anybody's standards. Or that abrasive or withdrawn person that we meet, you know, may have developed that uh, obnoxious or, or, or push away uh, affect as a layer of protection uh, against all of the times in which when they let people in close, that soft center in them got savaged in some way. And now they've got this hard Exterior, that person who interrupts us so often, who, who's always barging in, may have grown up in a family system where she or he just never got the chance to have a voice, to really be heard. And all their life, they're struggling with this desperate desire to have somebody know them, hear them, respect them. That person in our circle who seems so distant, or so uncaring or so insensible to what's going on around them may in fact have within them this long list of burdens and anxieties and to-do lists and crushing pressures that they don't know how to manage. And so that's their occupying thought, even when all we see is they just, just don't seem to be in the game, in, in our game. To paraphrase the renowned Scottish author Ian McLaren, be kind to everyone, for all of us are fighting a great battle. What I think we need most, and you check me on your own perception on this, but what I think we need most in the midst of the battles that all of us are fighting is for some people in our lives who offer us some expression of love that breaks down the fear. Let me say that again. At the core of so many of us is this fear of one kind or another. And we develop these layers around it to protect the self against the fear. And then people bang on the, on the layers and criticize the layers. When what we most desperately need is somebody who does something to speak to the fear inside of us. 
to give us courage, to encourage us in the midst of that fear. Real encouragement is, is different from what it passes for so often in our time, I'm convinced. Paying somebody a casual compliment is nice, but it, it's not encouragement in the mean, meaning that I want us to think about today. Blithely wishing somebody a good day or just casually saying, oh, I'm sure you'll get past whatever you're dealing with. You just hang in there. Is not encouragement, okay? As, as the, um, the Bible, as Paul, for example, means that word. If you pay attention to nothing else I'm going to say to you today, pay attention to this part. This is the important part. Encouragement is real love directed at real fear. Encouragement is real love, genuine, a genuine heart for people, directed at real fear, directed at the real heart, the internal soft spot of people. Encouragement is an offering of love that helps break down the fear that we are not enough and that we are all alone in that reality. In his wonderful book, The Five Love Languages, how many of you ever come across that book, The Five Love Languages? Uh, Gary Chapman, in this marvelous book, uh, points out that, that everybody reads or receives love in different ways. And there are some common themes to this. Some people, for example, live with a fear that, that no one really notices or cares about what brings them joy in life. There are people who just think, I'm just not noticed at that level of detail. For these people, gifts are a fabulous source of encouragement because they say uh, somebody noticed, somebody cared, and somebody felt that I was worth sacrificing for in some way. There are other folks who live with the fear that they're not interesting enough or important enough for somebody of value to invest seriously in them. Um, we may find it hard to believe that people feel that way, but there are some deep beneath the surface that is what they feel. Even pretty well put together people have had experiences that made them from an early age doubt whether anybody thought they were that important enough to invest seriously in them. For those people, the fact that you are willing to show up regularly uh, to, to, to show up at a weekly, weekly small group gathering with them, uh, to, to do something fun with them, to spend quality time with them, that's the thing that encourages them the most, quality time. There are other people in your circle who are haunted by the fear that deep down they're not good enough or capable enough to merit real appreciation from other people. Uh, and for these individuals, when you speak, Words of affirmation, really heartfelt words of affirmation that name a special quality, an act of grace, a, 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 a potential that you see unfolding in them in a wonderful way. When you speak these affirmative words to them, it is encouraging to a degree that you can't even begin to understand if that's not your particular love language. It just means so much. It's so encouraging. And there are others who live with such a harrowing sense of burden in their life, with just this exhausting sense of responsibility, right? Of a list that they're never going to get through, whether real or imagined. 
Um, that, that if you perform an act of service for them, I mean, you empty the trash, you do the laundry, you take care of the kids that frees them up to tackle something else on the to-do list. If you lighten the load in some way for them, it's the most encouraging thing you could possibly do, though it seems like such a small act to you. And, And then there are those people for whom physical touch is their love language. Most men. Um, No, lots of women. This is a huge part of how they experience encouragement. It it quiets the fear that they're not attractive enough, they're not worthy enough to be embraced. Your loving touch can be worth more than a thousand words. Let me say it again. Encouragement is any expression of real love directed at the real fears that haunt people. What are the fears? Think about this. What are the fears that you suspect may be haunting the people in your closest community? Do you have the kind of relationship with them where you could ask, what is it? What is it you wake up in the night worrying about, feeling stressed about? What is it that that underlies the way you respond and even layer yourself in life? What is the language, the particular form of encouragement uh, that they may need to continue to do battle with the stuff that's challenging in life? This past week, I was sitting um, at a coffee table with the... uh, president of Fuller Theological Seminary. And I was talking about this message I was going to give this weekend about the theme of encouragement. And and, uh, Mark Laberton is his name. And Mark suddenly brightened up and he said, oh, encouragement is so much more amazing than that. And I said, well, what are you talking? He said, I I knew this doctor, this uh, researcher in San Francisco named Tom Boyce, and he has made amazing discoveries about the power of encouragement. I said, tell me about that. Well, it turns out that Dr. Tom Boyce, who's a professor of pediatrics and psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, has discovered that encouragement does not only alter someone's emotional state, It actually alters their biological condition through something he calls biological embedding. Dr. Boyce and his colleagues have found that children who had mentors in their life, who who communicated to them in a convincing way, I believe in you. I believe in you. The children that had these people in their life that communicated that kind of belief did not just experience a momentary emotional rush, though they did get that rush. They went on to have lower levels of physical pathology and higher levels of mental and behavioral health than those without those encouragers in their life. More significantly, Dr. Boyce writes, and I found it, I went back and found his study online, the differences are stable and long-term. This encourager produces physical differences that are not momentary. They are stable and long-term. And these differences influence health and well-being and learning and or behavior over the whole course of life. More amazing still, these benefits, gaining these benefits, did not require that the child was exposed to lots of encouraging people 
over a long period of time. One encourager, one person that successfully communicated, I believe in you, even encountered briefly, forever changed the physiology of that child. It altered his or her health pathway for the rest of their life. Christian therapist Larry Crabb asks, why do we so infrequently delight in one another? I mean, we may feel that the other is delightful, but why do we so infrequently communicate the delight we feel in one another? It's people who don't know us well, oddly, who often find the most to appreciate in us. And that leaves us worried that to know us is to not delight in us. Right? Why do people get into affairs? Why do people uh, run out after random uh, conversations when their family or their group of friends is right there? It's this fear that to, to know us is to not delight in us. We don't really believe, says Crabb, that there is something terrific in us that would arouse delight. Or if there is, we believe that the deeper things which are more true about us are bad. Maybe goodness lies on the surface for me, but badness runs deep. And it might. Human depravity, sin, you know, it could, it does it run deep. But this is where the Christian gospel is such profoundly good news. And Crabb goes on to tell a story of a man that he knew and was counseling who was raised in a very angry family. And this had had profound layering effects in his life and, and, and wrecked him in all kinds of ways. And mealtimes in this household, says Crabb, were tense affairs in which criticism and sarcasm were ladled out in, in heavy measures. But just down the block from this guy, there, there lived this other family in this rambling old house that had this great big porch on it. And this family had a totally different kind of lifestyle to them. And by the time the boy was 10 years old, he would take, had taken to excusing himself from his own family's dinner as early as he possibly could in the evening. And he would go down the street and he would crawl underneath the porch of the other family. And he would just lie there. And he would just listen. And you'd hear the warm sounds of laughter through the kitchen floorboards as the other family sat at their table and he would just enjoy the burble of conversation. And even vicariously, it was just the bomb of encouragement to him. And Dr. Crabb asked this man one day what it would have been like if the father of that house figured out he was there and came out one day and found him underneath the porch and invited him to come out and to join them 
at the family table. And what if when he got there, the boy accidentally, clumsily knocked over a glass of water and it went everywhere, <laughs> made a, a huge mess. And what if when he did, the father roared with delight, get this boy some more water. I want him to enjoy this meal. What if that had happened to you? Dr. Crabb asked him, and the grown man melted because he had would have changed everything. We need to hear the father laugh, says Crabb. Because change depends on hearing. No, it depends on experiencing the character of God. Real change at the center, beneath the layers, at the core, in the soft spot. It depends on feeling the embrace and the delight of the Heavenly Father. And, 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 the, and that delight when it comes, at the very moment when we expected him to say, I'm sick and tired of putting up with you and your mistakes. When, when we receive that delight instead... <laughs> It, it alters things. And without that, we will not change consistently or deeply in the way that we need to. And then Crab asks, do you and I see the good in people that way? Do we? Do we see the good heart buried beneath all of the pettiness and the resentments and the empire-building ambitions that irritate us so badly? Do we accept others the way that Jesus Christ accepts us? Do we forgive each other for the wrongs that we do and believe there is something better in trivial terms? Can we let the D in chemistry go in light of the larger context? Can we? As I said at the start, the Apostle Paul, like his master Jesus, was known for teaching and modeling the encouraging love of the Heavenly Father. And so maybe it isn't surprising that when some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, the Bible says, and Paul decided to go back through Macedonia, he didn't have to go alone. I think it's an interesting little detail the scriptures give us. We've just been told about what an encourager Paul was, right? And then we're suddenly told that Paul is now in fearful circumstances and has to go through some tough territory in his life. But St. Luke reports that he was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, by Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, by Gaius from Derbe, and Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. Why does the Bible bother to include this detail? Why did these people, all of these people, make this long journey with Paul? Here's my guess. Here's why I think this is included. It's because these guys felt a bond with Paul that could not be broken. If Paul was going to be facing fearful times, if this guy who had so encouraged them in their fears 
was going through some tough stuff, by golly, they were going with him to encourage him. Are you part of a community like that? Can we help you find, if you're not, a circle of support like that? Because it's the place where perfect love, even imperfect love, casts out fear. It's the place where greater health gets built and gets personally experienced. And if you're already part of such a circle, a family, a small group, a team, a work group, a circle of friends, will you resolve to be even more of an encourager in that place and spread this spirit of encouragement in that circle? Because you know what? Where genuine commitment and real encouragement are present, that circle and those people become almost unbreakable. Unbreakable. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you actually look upon us with the kind of delight that the mother and father in that um, ramshackle house with a porch felt for their own and those who needed to know that they didn't need to be afraid. Thank you for the reality of that. Help it to sink deeply into the soft center of who we are beneath the layers. And enable us, Lord, to be people who offer real encouragement that addresses the place of real fear in the others we meet, that we might help one another to develop the kind of resilience that can face anything. By your grace, in community, through Jesus Christ. Amen.